Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I am Deb Hunter, and today we have the indie podcasting superstar, Alicia Mintz, with us. Alicia, how are you today? Deb, I'm so well. Hi, all things Tudor. I'm really excited to be here today. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled and a little bit intimidated to have you because you are such a superstar, and I can't wait to talk to you. I was so excited to learn that you love the Tudors practically as much as I do, and that's saying quite a bit. So let's talk to our All Things Tudor friends. If I met you and you met all of us at a cocktail party, how would you introduce yourself, Felicia? Goodness, depending on how much we've had to drink at the cocktail party, I may talk about my little puppy, I may talk about my cats, but for All Things Tudor to get to know me, hi, I'm Alicia Mintz. I'm one half of the Trashy Divorces podcasting team. Trashy Divorces is a good podcast about bad relationships. It's a marital misadventure ride every single week. And on that, I do tend to throw in a number of Tudor stories just because I'm so into all the Tudor hot goss. To me, it is hot goss, even though it's 500 years later. Well, and who better to know about trashy divorces and where would they fit in better in history than the Tudor era? Holy cats, Henry VIII is his own ride of marital misadventure. And if you want a real goodness Shakespearean character when it comes to trashy divorces, Henry VIII is your guy. He's got all the necessary requirements of a true Shakespearean tragedy. He's got his fatal flaw. The bigger he is, the harder he falls. He succumbs to external pressure and fate. And that fatal flaw that he has will lead to his downfall. I don't know if you have narrowed down what Henry VIII's fatal flaw may be. To me, it's pride. Maybe the desire to want the sun and how it absolutely wrecks these glorious relationships that he could have otherwise had. I'm so curious about your love of history. Can you tell me what lured you into the world of history and then a little more about your experiences in trashy tutors, so to speak? Of course. I have loved history from, goodness, the beginning of time. I've always been a social sciences kind of gal. The interesting component about history and the way I kind of think of it, we're living in an open book test. We have tens of thousands of years of recorded stories and narratives and families and dynamics that to me, once you understand how they're all connected, history really does become very much alive. I had a gig a long time ago. I was in the corporate world for years and years and spent a number of years traveling 
And in so doing, single gal traveling the world, I would (laughs) bring all of my Tudor books with me. They weighed more than my clothing sometimes, but that's what I would do at night just to relax a little. And I have been on a 20-year exploration of Tudor Plantagenet English history because, again, it comes alive once you know how these families interconnect and their influence in power or the abuse of power in court dynamics, history does become so much more alive. I look at the entire Tudor dynasty, it's almost like high school cliques that you have to know all the background about why this clique does or doesn't talk to that clique over any given period of time. It's all very petty. It's all very trashy. It's all very fascinating. The Tudors are amazing. They really are. And our journeys are so similar with carrying books on vacation. I'm even (laughs) such a nerd. When we go to the UK, (laughs) I purchase first editions of the same books I already have simply because they put different covers on UK books, and I have to have them. So let's get to Henry VIII. What was up or not with with that guy? So many wives, and each had a unique story. Where do you want to start? Oh, goodness. Let's go ahead and set up a little bit of Henry VIII's Imago. Imago is a term, I-M-A-G-O, that was coined by psychologist Dr. Harville Hendricks, in his book, Getting the Love You Want. This is many, many moons ago. But this concept of a mago, you can kind of see like mirroring. So in whatever relationship you're in now, you are working things out in your current relationship from relationships past. That's, I think, Henry VIII. So let's think about Henry VIII's second son to Henry VII. Kind of a miserly king, a little bit of tragedy. Henry's Mother passes away when he's young, but Henry's the spare. He's got an older brother with his own castle in Wales and his own household, and Henry's never looked to be the king. Henry VII has got all of his hopes banked on Henry's older brother, Arthur. As we probably know, sadly, Arthur passes away right after his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Now, I want you to imagine poor Henry not having... Sure, he's got the education. He grows up in a household with his sisters and his mother. But at 10, boom, here he is thrust into this life that was probably not supposed to be his. Under the thumb of his father, who now is a widower. And I don't know, Henry VII, kind of an interesting cat. Not the nicest guy all around. Again, very stingy when it comes to outspending cash on things. He's fairly terrible to Catherine of Aragon, Arthur's widow. But Henry, 10 years old to Catherine of Aragon's saucy, saucy 1617 at the time of Arthur's passing, right? Goodness, Henry loves her. And she is his what we call poster on the wall. Do you know, you remember when you were in middle school and you had the posters on the wall of Leif Garrett or Duran Duran, whoever. We can go all kinds of time frames. But I think Henry looks to Catherine of Aragon sort of as a poster on the wall. 
Henry, upon the passing of his father, Henry VII, will commit to marrying Kathy. Oh. Now, let me just say straight up, Catherine of Aragon is a fantastic king because Henry certainly doesn't know how to do it at this point. And you've got Catherine of Aragon, daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, youngest child, but very much raised with the belief that she is the Queen of England. She's been Queen of England, promised from a very early age. Henry does amazing with her influence being an 18-year-old kid who doesn't know anything about running a country. Henry, I think, finally, without the weight of his father, is like, what? I get to joust for real. Because once Arthur passes away, Henry spends the next number of years sort of shrouded in this cocoon of safety from his father. So everything that Henry VIII heard he could not do for a thousand years, he can't wait to do. He doesn't know how to sign papers or assemble parliament or work with a star chamber of counselors. Catherine of Aragon is going to teach him how to king. But they're certainly in love. All things are looking great for this couple. Henry's biggest win in battle wasn't even Henry's win. It was Catherine commanding the English army at the Battle of Flodden Field that provides Henry this big win for him as king. Catherine is an asset, is what I'm trying to get across. As much as Catherine of Aragon is an asset, within the first decade or so of marriage, what do you have to do to sustain your dynasty? You gotta have the kid, right? Catherine, numerous pregnancies, numerous miscarriages, there is a son born, sadly dies shortly after, surviving child, Princess Mary. They've been married a long time, Henry and Catherine, and not that being married for 20 or so years will not stop Henry from having a number of affairs. And Henry is, for our Zodiac friends out there, Henry's a cancer, and Henry loves to fall in love. He's very moony. He loves the love part of it. And you'll find that Henry over his lifetime will have two types of mistresses. One type is sort of one and done honeys that probably are lower born. But if Henry's going to get involved with someone in his court, it normally is a long-standing thing. So we'll bring up one of his longer-term mistresses, Bessie Blount, who will have his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. Can you imagine Catherine of Aragon, daughter, been through the trials and travails of marriage and childbirth and getting your husband to be king, and we finally got kind of a successful reign, and my reproductive woes are not my fault, but then Henry honestly thinks about, well, I'm just going to take Princess Mary out of the line of succession and give it to my illegitimate son. Poor Catherine of Aragon, misused part of his power, but I don't know if she ever really gets the credit that should be due hers. First ex-wife, longest marriage. I talked for a bunch there. Deb, what do you want to follow up on about old Kathy of Aragon? She's a fascinating character as the first part of the divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived moniker. She really isn't. You've hit all the high points. She was born to be the Queen of England. 
she was determined to fulfill what she felt like was her destiny. She was married to a king, but she was a very strong woman in her own right, wasn't she? Very much so. So you can only imagine. Here's Catherine of Aragon, right? Been married, long time. Now we're sitting in the mid-1520s. Holy cats. This is a little period of English history I like to call the Court of Two Queens, because here comes Anne Boleyn. Now, the remarkable thing about Anne Boleyn is probably more than likely never would have ever been recorded in a history book. But Anne Boleyn really does, uh, I don't ever want to pick a favorite queen. I think all of Henry's wives were misused by him in a million different ways, but I do have a soft, tender spot for Annie B. So Anne Boleyn, goodness, daughter of the Howard family. And again, when we talk about the Tudor court being cliques and families, the Howards, big players, big movers, big shakers. Originally, Anne's path was to go marry an Irish lord. She should have been lost into history, but no, coming from France, where Anne has been in the court of Margaret of Austria, where Anne has been in the court of Mary Tudor, the French queen, as well as the new queen of France, Queen Claude. Anne comes back to England for this Irish marriage and looks, acts, is a native-born French woman. She's glamorous. She wears a French hood. Her clothing is different. She's fluent in French. She is bringing a polish and a joie de vivre, je ne sais quoi, back to the English court that has been pretty staid in what it's doing for a long time. Henry knocked out of the park. Maybe I don't want this thing for Anne after all. Right? Then we have to intersect Thomas Wolsey because Anne coming back from France. Maybe I don't want to marry the Irish lord. Maybe this Thomas Wyatt guy looks pretty good. Maybe it's Henry Percy. Anne's doing just fine on her own until here comes Henry VIII rolling on up. I'm going to impede every part of your marriage journey with the help of Thomas Wolsey. I don't know about you. I think this is kind of a jerk move. Anne will, again, make her vow to do displeasure upon Woolsey as he's done her. But I kind of have a hot take in my own heart of hearts for when it comes to Anne and Henry. I feel like Anne has been maligned, misused, ill-used by recorded history. Because once her beheading happened, she's mostly erased We don't have visual images. Her writing is destroyed. We're lucky enough to have Henry's 17 love letters to her, helpfully confiscated by the Vatican. Appreciate those for future historical use, though. But here's Anne looking to make good. Just wanting to make a marriage, settle down, do the thing, live her courtly life. Henry will not leave her alone. So I think society has this idea of Anne as being a home wrecker. I tend to, through those 17 letters that Henry writes her, see it a very different way. I see Anne telling him, no, 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 no. 
or playing along with the game because it's really hard to tell the king no. Anne also has the benefit of her sister, Mary Bolin, being one of the mistresses of the king. Why on earth would Anne wreck her possibility at a future really, really good marriage by tossing her maidenhead to the king? Doesn't make any sense, right? Not without some kind of promises. And Henry, I'm not sure if you've noticed, you're a married man. You can't make those promises to me. I don't know, Deb, do you have an idea? How do you feel about Anne Boleyn? Do you think she was a schemer or involved in a plot that she can't say no to? You don't say no to the king. I agree with you. She had such a presence and she had to be like a breath of fresh air in the English court. And I just don't see how Henry had any other choice. He had to notice her and she was what he actually wanted. He wanted very much to be a Renaissance prince. And here was a woman who brought all those concepts from Europe, but she was an English woman. And once he made up his mind, I really don't see that she could say no. She can't. She's helpless Even to say Even though she tried. No. She tried. Oh. <laughs> she tried so hard. I'm not interested, man. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with this. Yeah, she had a lot of self-esteem. She really, like you say, she wanted a different life. But Henry had decided, and how are you going to say no to the King of England at that point? Well, and so there is something interesting in the eternal age-old question, right, of was Anne born in 1501 or 1507? I'm a believer in the first. I think she's a 1501 circa around their birthday. I can't imagine with Henry having surrounded himself in his court of sycophants that they would have been as objectionable to Anne and Henry going through a remarriage with her being 21. I think that's a very different story with her being almost 30. You do have to realize that Henry has wrecked her marriage opportunities along the way, so she's just sitting on the vine. Again, you don't tell the king no. So here we go, and we're starting that love affair, and oh, be my mistress. No, not going to do it, man. I've seen what you do to women, not interested, until finally Anne is <sighs> no longer able to say no to the king, say no to the pressure from her family because this gets her family ahead as well at court. Now, sure, I've been married to Catherine now 20-so-odd years. She's been a good wife, but let's put her out to pasture with childbearing years. We are not sharing a marital bed anymore. Let me go ahead and try to, how do I make a legitimate heir? The divorce, I think, that Henry thought was going to be so, so easy turns out to be not very easy at all. Manages to piss off the Pope in the meantime, piss off a lot of his ministers, as well as upturn the entire religious structure of his country in order to fulfill this desire to marry in. That's a lot of power plays just to get the girl you want, Henry. It's not that I don't respect all those moves. But the price to Catherine, right? I mean, this is, oh gosh, it's every episode of a soap opera because now you have this years-long struggle 
with the Vatican, him telling Anne, baby, baby, it's going to be okay. Catherine, the wife, hell no. I'm not going to give you a divorce. Oh, please, let's go to trial. Catherine of Aragon has what I think is her most famous moment in her mic drop at the Blackfriars trial in 1529, right? What haven't I done for you? I've helped your mistresses. I've helped your administration. Everything you've asked, I've done. You, there is no ground for you to divorce me. But alas, Henry's going to get what Henry wants. Also helps and gets pregnant. Now, there's a lot of shifting. Can you imagine in between the Calais visit, 1532, and after that, meeting the king of France, Henry feels like he has a little bit of cover. And Anne's pregnant now. Whoa, Elizabeth's going to come on in 1533. There are a lot of moves made in this particular year that, ah, poor Catherine gets screwed. Anne thinks she's delivering of Henry's savior only to have the girl. Enter 1533. Goodness. And Anne's been crowned queen, coronated back in June, and here comes the girl, and it's okay. She's young enough, I guess. Again, I think she's a little older, but more children will come, and here we land into Anne of a Thousand Days. And the thing I think that's important to remember when we talk about Anne Boleyn is our accounts of her time at court her queenship are all mostly made by her enemies. They're made by friends of Catherine of Aragon. They're made by enemies of the Howard family. I can't imagine Anne growing up in the courts that she grew up in. These are some of the most enlightened women within Europe. Margaret of Austria, Queen Cloud. She's meeting movers and shakers and artists and writers she would have seen how a court works. Anne Boleyn has been in Catherine of Aragon's ladies-in-waiting group forever. She knows how queens work. Again, I think Anne gets a bad rap. Anne of a thousand days should have lasted longer. But alas, it does not. <laughs> I just find Anne's story to be so tragic and so heartbreaking. And it was almost like she was a sacrifice for... Mm -hmm what would become her daughter and her daughter's reign. And there's something just so poignant about her story. It's truly one for the ages. She was, again, a, a very strong woman that is documented. She was very outspoken, which has been noted that that's wonderful if you're a mistress to be that spirited. Yet when you're a wife, it's different. And Henry wanted someone more in what we'll say in touch with the times of the 1530s, which a wife didn't have any rights, wasn't really supposed to do anything. And we know what unfortunately happened to Anne and enter Jane Seymour. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Tony Award-winning musical, Six, coming to Tennessee Performing Arts Center February 21st through the 26th. 
from Tudor queens to pop icons, the six wives of Henry VIII take the microphone to remix 500 years of historical heartbreak into a euphoric celebration of 21st century girl power. This new original musical is the global sensation that everyone is losing their head over. The Tony Award-winning musical Six comes to Tennessee Performing Arts Center February 21st through the 26th. Get your tickets today at tpac.org. That's tpac.org. Enter Jane Seymour, you said it. So now we're living in 1536. 1536 is the year of three queens. Catherine of Aragon will pass away in January. Anne, who is pregnant, will miscarry after Henry, who at the age of 39 years old somehow thinks he can go out and joust, gets in a pretty bad joust for real accident, and he's comatose. I mean, he's out for hours, and he's got no air and miscarries. Oh, goodness, this is not an episode about Thomas Cromwell, but whoa, how he power plays in Anne's downfall to me is one of the most insidious and incredible stories within the Tudor era. But it is during this time with Thomas Cromwell maligning Anne within Henry's ear, Henry's attention does turn to Jane Seymour, a little more docile, much fairer when it comes to complexion and hair and Oh, poor Jane. Stick around and you'll suddenly see more. She's part of the Seymour family, just as powerful as the Howards. All of her male relatives have their own ambitions and ways they want to power play in the court and, well, get rid of those Howards anyway. Goodness. I call it the assassination of Anne Boleyn does occur May 19th. It is 11 days later that Henry marries Jane Seymour. And huzzah, I guess. I mean, you murdered your last wife, so now that's divorced and beheaded. Coming up to Jane, died. Her reign isn't even really a reign. Henry will wait to coronate Jane as queen. The plans are made for after she delivers the son, which sadly, Jane dies 12 days later after delivering that son. The one time Jane actually gets a little sassy with Henry. There's a revolt up country. And, you know, Jane gets the gumption to say something to Henry about like, "Mm, I don't know, man, like maybe you want to reconsider this. And Henry has said, you know, I want you to remember what happened to the last woman who tried to argue with me. I had her beheaded. Like Jane Seymour, you feel sympathetic for, you feel sorry for. It would have been interesting to have her live to see what would have become. But even in her death, she becomes Henry's favorite wife because she delivered the heir. It is not any of Henry's other wives who appear in portraiture. It is Jane Seymour as his one true and loyal wife. So out of those first three, I don't know. I don't want to call anybody who had it the worst. That sixth the musical will get there. But those are your first three, divorced, beheaded, died. Henry, not a great track record so far, man. No, not at all. And poor Jane, you wouldn't want anyone to do that. But I'm one of the few that believes Jane was not as nice and as sweet as history has made her out to be. 
she was the wife of a king and the mother of a king. So at the time, things would have been documented very differently. But I will say that she was trying on her wedding dress at the moment Anne was being beheaded. And it's just not a good character trait in anyone, really, is it? (laughs) I've never heard that story before. I don't doubt it, but I've never heard that particular story before. I'm always going to tend to sympathy for the wives as opposed to Henry. I think Henry, by this point especially, is very much on his own ego trip, right? So three wives, but hey, they're all gone. They're dead. I'm a single man now. Now at 40, he can have his midlife crisis, which if his reputation hadn't preceded him all through Europe, he may have had some brides who would have been willing to go for it, but it's a tough ride, right? Sends Holbein out. Send, I want some pretty, pretty pictures of all these ladies, but it's unsurprising how many offers Henry is not getting back. To land on sweet Anne of Cleves. If I have another soft spot in my heart, it's old AOC. Anne of Cleves, holy cats. We kind of think that Cleves is this backwater, and it is not as a country principality, Cleves, quite as sophisticated as some other of the European courts, but I think it's important to note that Anne's father, Anne of Cleves' father, the king, was a big proponent of Erasmus. It's not like there's not learning and super cool things going down in Cleves as well. But for mostly a political, religious alliance, here comes Anne. Dress is different and doesn't dress different in a good way as opposed to the French style of Anne Boleyn when she comes in. Anne of Cleves looks different. She doesn't speak the language. And Henry, oh gosh, like just imagine the story because it it all goes wrong in just five minutes that the whole relationship is going to be doomed. So here's Henry. I can't wait for Anna Cleves to get here. And Henry now is 40 years old, a little bit over. He has been playing in this courtly game of life. So do you remember the Truman Show, that movie? and everything is specifically set up for Truman's experiences, that's Henry VIII. So Henry VIII has never been told no. He's never been an outcast. He's always the handsomest at anywhere he goes. He's always the smartest. He's always the kindest. Everybody loves Henry, and Henry has been playing this game of tricks, the courtly game of love, right, for years and years. And one of his favorite moves is to dress up not as king, but lowlier people, because true lovers should know each other. Now, Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, they all know this is a game. It's the Henry show. Every component of Henry's life has been set up for Henry just to enjoy the ride. Nobody bothers to tell Anne of Cleves this, right? So here she is. She arrives after a terrible journey and in busts (laughs) Henry not making himself known, Henry and all of his merry men, who are all middle-aged men right now, thinking that this girl knows the trick and she should immediately fall in love with the king. But Anne of Cleves is like, who the hell are you? I'm terrified. Are you here to rob us? What is happening? There's a little bit of diplomatic move, right, that happens in those few minutes, but 
Henry immediately after this, I like her not. Henry is scrambling to get out of this marriage before it happens, and diplomatically, contracts have been signed, no way to do that. So poor Anne of Cleves, the shortest marriage, six months tip to toe, January to June, when Henry's eye has turned again. And as it comes to it, if we look at the first three, divorced, beheaded, died, Anne's divorce is better than all of them because Henry's like, listen, I'm going to make you my sister. I'll give you Richmond Palace. You can have Heaver too. There's honey hives there. You'll dig it. Here's a big fortune. I don't want to have to kill you. So if you could just take this deal. And Anne of Cleves, not even messing around, man. That seems like a pretty good deal. So did Anne of Cleves probably have the happiest life after divorce? She's sort of a role model to look up to. She will live in Richmond Palace for a number of years. However, when Henry dies, her terms of divorce (laughs) settlement are renegotiated a little bit. And so she spends her later years at Hever, but dies on her own terms and not because of her power-abusive ex-husband. So Anne of Cleves, I think, is the real success story out of Henry's wives. Sounds good to me. I'm just curious your thoughts, Alicia. Do you believe that Henry had already set his sights on Catherine Howard by the time Anne of Cleves arrived in England? No, because Kathy Howard shows up to be one of Anne of Cleves's maids of honor. So I think it happened all during that time. Henry already didn't want to have anything to do with Anne, but I think had a further push in those winter months of 1540 to make it happen. And it does take a little bit of time for him to get with Catherine Howard as well, but, oh, God, hold your heart. Catherine Howard, you poor, poor, misused, sexual abuse child victim. Again, her family, the Howards, have been sort of down and out since the beheading of Catherine's cousin Anne Boleyn. The Seymours have kind of been in charge when it comes to court politics. And here the Howards see, I think maybe we have a way to make a new play in this. Catherine Howard, I mean, she's a child. She's 15. And she's got this 45-year-old just lech with a rottenest leg, mean, he's just mean by this point, but Henry looks at Catherine and sees, right, his rose without a thorn. Now, Catherine very much a rose without a thorn. She did not choose to be a child sexual assault victim, but has been completely ill-used by men throughout her life. I think if there's one to feel truly, truly sorry for, it's Catherine Howard, Yes, we can counter that with, yeah, she was, you know, having an affair. She was letting Jane Rochford, widow of George Boleyn, Anne's brother, kind of help her out in that. But you have put a child on the throne, given her access to a bunch of gowns, aren't really paying attention to her, except for when it comes to your needs. She's 17. Is anybody there to make her do better? What story has Catherine Howard told herself for that many years to extol that behavior in court, right? My heart just breaks for Catherine Howard. It really, really does. Yeah, it's just so sad. It's a different story than Anne Boleyn, of course, as we know, but it's just so tragic, her entire experience, and to know she died so young 
and you know, another victim of Henry VIII, another truly heartbreaking story. Well, and Catherine Howard will take along Jane Rochford Boleyn, right? There's two and one. Henry will behead six women at the Tower of London over his lifetime, mostly because of his own insecurities. Like, there were a lot of things you could have done if you wanted to improve your image, Henry, with Catherine Howard. But the Second beheading probably was not the thing to do. But alas, here comes Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr, just well-educated, a widow many times over to men much older than herself. Catherine Parr, there's no question of, is she a virgin? Is she not a virgin? She's past childbearing years. This is really to have a queen in place to handle those sort of things. But it's not like... Henry VIII didn't think about beheading Catherine Parr, too. They have gotten in a few different tits and tats and disagreements where Catherine Parr is very good at soothing the, I don't know, very ruffled, very damaged ego by this point of her husband. But Catherine Parr, it's not Henry she's into. She can't say no to Henry. You don't say no to the king. But Catherine Parr's true love is a Seymour. And once Henry's gone and dead and out in 1549, it is Kathy Parr and Seymour getting hitched. But even she doesn't have a happy ending then. She dies shortly after childbirth, after her husband Seymour tries to make the moves on her stepdaughter. It is a trashy saga, all of it. But I think that is about the marital misadventures of Henry VIII. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. But poor Kathy Parr only survived for so long. It is 40 years of just way to mess it up again and again and again, man. Again, it's good to be king, I guess. You have a whole world crafted around you and nobody tells you no. But whoa, the damage and the wreckage (laughs) that you have done to so many souls over the course of your reign, Henry. Impressive impressive and not in a good way. And we're still talking about it today. It had a real impact. It's a story that never gets old. I mean, the more source information, the more portraiture, the more things that are discovered. Again, history is always alive. There's always a different way to re-examine a story that you thought was very familiar with new information, with additional information. I love this time period. It is so interesting to me how it all plays in and out. And even this time period sets up so much coming in the future. The Howards don't go away. The Seymours don't go away. The Dudleys don't go away. The Courtneys don't go away. All these families are still playing in English peerage today if you know how they're all connected. It is a labyrinth of my historical joy. Thanks for letting me talk about it, Deb. I love it so much. Oh, that's great. And I'm just so glad we talked about the women because they all have their own unique story. And really, the only tie they have is Henry VIII. So thanks for bringing those stories to life. Do you have time to maybe talk about Six the Musical for a minute? I would love to. Deb, I know you have just seen Six the Musical on Broadway. I have not been lucky enough to see it live yet. But I hooked into six 
many years ago when it was just a little soundtrack. Nine songs, 42 minutes of a Tudor pop extravaganza. I recommend to all your listeners on All Things Tudor, even if you can't get in to see the show, if you're into the wives of Henry VIII and their stories, the soundtrack alone will deliver all the feels for you. So Six the Musical, really incredible. I love this story. If you haven't heard about it, I'm going to talk to you like it's a brand new concept for you. Six is a musical which reimagines the Six Wives of Henry VIII. And the one thing, to your point, Deb, you said it, that they have in common is Henry VIII lived across multiple different decades. And the premise of Six as a Show is we're all going to compete to see who had it the worst from Henry. There's an amazing creative team behind this particular production. Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss are doing their senior project. This is, oh gosh, 2017 back at Cambridge University in London. Toby and Lucy have met back in 2014. They were in rent together in 2015. And Toby has to come up with a project and he establishes four guiding principles that reflect his own politics and passions. And I love the way that Marlowe, Toby Marlowe started out with this, saying it needs to have a cast that's predominantly female or non-binary. It's got to have a famous subject matter. It would experiment with theatrical form, and the genre would be pop because it's the best kind of music. So he recruits his friend, Lucy Moss, and holy cats, they create six. Something super interesting. Lucy Moss is friends with Antonia Frazier's grandsons. Antonia Frazier, if you're looking for a wonderful author about Tudor history, I can't recommend Antonia Frazier enough. So Lucy and Toby get together and they write this incredible musical, nine songs, 42 minutes of pure pop glee. And each, oh goodness, wife is beautifully costumed. One of the things that I think Six does really well, because you've seen it, right? The costuming is taking historical forms of what costuming looked like upgraded, right? Redone for today, modernized. The music is based on... Oh, yes. Very 21st century. Very 21st century, but all of the same forms that you see, the correct formation of each, but we're looking at pop princesses. And oh gosh, each queen has their delightful time in the spotlight, right? To have their, how bad I had it. Catherine of Aragon, her song, No Way. Yeah, there's no way you're leaving me. I'm the first one. You can't divorce me. Like, no, divorce? There, that, that's not a thing. Goodness, we get to Anne Boleyn, don't lose your head. Oh, it's so very clever. There's a lot of double entendre in that, that when it comes to songwriting, nailed it. Jane Seymour's song, Heart of Stone, is sort of the powerhouse ballad of the show. My favorite, Get Down, Anne of Cleves, really talking about her as an independent woman getting out the best. Catherine Howard's song, All You Want to Do Will break your heart. It is this pop ballad, but the underneath message is just simply terrible. 
I don't need your love, Catherine Parr, because she's so in love with Seymour. It's not Henry. She spends her marriage pining for something else that once she gets it, doesn't happen. But yeah, I can't recommend Six and Up. Even if you don't have the show coming to your town, have the price of admission to get into the show. I guarantee you downloading the Six, the musical soundtrack, 42 minutes of pop joy, especially if you like the story of Henry's Queens. The score is so phenomenal. I can't tell you how much this music will capture your heart and little foot tapping. Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss do win a Tony for Best Musical Score just this past year, 2022. It's a phenomenal piece of work. It really is. And when I told my husband we had tickets to six, he thought it was going to be all women and girls. So he was a little hesitant, but I wanted to see it, and he was fine with it. And we got there, and this show is for everyone, all ages, all genders, across the board. Everyone loved it. I've been a supporter of the arts my entire life. It's the only Broadway show I have ever been to that got an absolute standing ovation the moment they stopped. We were all on our feet. It's just an absolute incredible show, great performances. And I agree with you. If you find some way to go to Broadway, catch it while it's on the road, it's worth it. It's definitely an investment. I truly listen to this soundtrack probably once a day and have for four years. I love it. I love it so hard. It is so clever. It is pitch perfect when it comes to sort of a different rendering is they say in Six the Musical, we're telling not history, but her story. There's so much more to the wives than just that one husband that they shared in common. But I think that's about it. That's the marital misadventures. Again, I can't recommend six highly enough. If you do get a chance to see it, I don't think you'll be disappointed. It's high energy, right? Oh, definitely. It's the fastest two hours you will ever spend in a theater. I bet that's true. I can't wait to get to see it one day. I'm a little gel. Well, thank you for that. Since trashy divorces are all over the Tudor era, I really would like for you to come back and us just hone in on one of the divorces sometime in the future when you have time. Oh, sure thing. I'd love it. Trashy Divorces, as a podcast, you can find it anywhere. We do cover famous and infamous divorces from old Hollywood to historical to current day divorces, but there are a number of divorces on there that do happen to involve the Tudor period just because it is my not even secret love. Everybody who knows me (laughs) knows how much I love the Tudors. I would love to come back. It has been a delight to be on today. Thank you, Deb. Well, likewise. Thank you, Alicia. And I really do see when you can fit into the schedule. I know you stay extremely busy with your podcast, and I appreciate you taking the time today. And I want to thank the listeners. All Things Tudor is my group, and they make my day every single day. I'd love for you to join us on Facebook. Just toggle in All Things Tudor, and we'll pop up there. Today, I'd like to thank Brie L. and Janice B. for their support. They are just 
perfect members, and I can't say enough good things about them. I want to thank everyone for the messages they've been sending, for the emails we've been getting. I know you're enjoying the podcast, and we're getting people like Alicia and a lot of great authors, historians. I try to listen to what you want and get that for you. And I would really like to thank Kim W. and Patty D. for their reviews. Thanks so much for thinking of me and taking your time to write those. So have a great day, and we'll catch y'all later. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.